The Patriots are just messing with us at this point. They are, right? I mean, that front office is operating on a higher plane than any other front office in the NFL. They just got Martellus Bennett, one of the best tight ends in the league, to compliment the best tight end in the league, Rob Gronkowski. <laughs> How? How did the other 31 teams let this happen? How did they let the Patriots get Chris Hogan at such a low price? How did they let the Patriots trade for Martellus Bennett for a late round pick? This is crazy. It's crazy. What are the other 31 GMs doing? What are you doing? Wake up, people! The Patriots are that bully that steals everyone else's lunch every single day in the cafeteria. 32 children enter the cafeteria with desserts, and one team at the end is eating all the desserts. Bill Belichick is a bully of the mind. That's right. Because you can imagine after a while, you just get tired. You get tired of being beaten in this chess match by Bill Belichick and company. And you just give up and just say, ah, I don't know what to do. This guy. He's always thinking 10 moves ahead. I'm thinking five moves ahead. He's thinking 10. I give up. Martellus Bennett was second in the NFL from 2014 to 2015 in yards after contact by tight ends. That's really good. When he gets his hands on the ball, he's incredibly hard to bring down because he's 6'6", 265. Do you know who is number one in yards after contact by tight ends in the last two years? Of course you know who it is. It's Rob Gronkowski. The Patriots have the two tight ends that are the hardest to stop in the NFL once the ball is in their hands. means you drive yourself crazy with laughter and <laughs> trying to understand how other NFL teams let the Patriots do this just makes me laugh into hysteria. It is hysterical. Oh. But in fantasy football, Martellus Bennett will be overvalued in all formats moving forward because he's not Aaron Hernandez. We hadn't talked about Aaron Hernandez in a year or two since the trial and he went to prison and he was thought to be forgotten about. Until the Patriots get their hands on another talented tight end. Then we bring back the Aaron Hernandez comp, which makes no sense. Because Martellus Bennett looks nothing like Aaron Hernandez. Martellus Bennett is an inline tight end. And technically, that makes him redundant with Rob Gronkowski. Aaron Hernandez was a proper move tight end. He was a pumped up wide receiver. Very different. 30 pounds lighter than Martellus Bennett. So no, they're not comparable at all. Having Martellus Bennett playing in line will allow the Patriots to line up Gronkowski all over the field, in the slot, out wide, as they did last year more than ever. And then I think in 2016, they'll do it even more. So Martellus Bennett will essentially be a Rob Gronkowski target volume facilitator. But Bennett himself is at best the number four option in the passing game behind Edelman, behind Lewis, and of course behind Gronkowski. And Bennett could be the number five option if Chris Hogan continues to develop. I discussed this on the Football Diehard show last week, and you can go to iTunes and look for Football Diehards with Matt Kelly to subscribe. On that show, I said that it's impossible to bet against Chris Hogan. He's overcome the odds year after year after year. Didn't play college football, played college lacrosse. 
and then squeezed in one year of football at Monmouth. That was Chris Hogan's path to the NFL. The probability that Chris Hogan would still be playing and be an active member of an NFL roster at age 27 with only one year of college football on his resume is beyond improbable, but he continues to defy the odds, and I would caution you betting against Chris Hogan in 2016. Chris Hogan has terrific measurables, 50th percentile or above across the board. Speed, burst, agility. There's a good likelihood that he absorbs more targets than Martellus Bennett does in 2016. That would make Martellus Bennett the number five option on his team's receiving core. Ugh. You never want your starting fantasy tight end to be the number five option on his real-life team. Zooming out and looking at this Martellus Bennett move, going to the Patriots, it was a great football move. It wasn't a great fantasy move for Martellus Bennett owners. The big winner was the Bears' Zach Miller. We love Zach Miller. How many times have we talked about Zach Miller on this show? Zach Miller was my tight end booty call last year. We had Liz Loza from Yahoo Fantasy on the Football Die Hard show last week. She talked about this concept that was new to me called the tight end booty call. That desperation tight end that you constantly find yourself turning to on waivers when you have a bye week or when your starting tight end gets injured. I had two last year. I had Zach Miller from the Bears and Will Ty from the Giants. Now, Zach Miller from the Bears becomes the starting tight end for the Chicago Bears, and he's automatically the number three option in the passing game. So I like Zach Miller in redraft more than I like Martellus Bennett in redraft in 2016, and why not? Zach Miller runs a 4-5-8-40. For a guy that's 6-5-240, that's really good. That comes out to a 109.9, 82nd percentile, height-adjusted speed score on playerprofiler.com. That's to go along with 91st percentile burst, the broad jump and the vertical jump mixed together into one equally weighted metric, and an 1128 agility score, 81st percentile. And we talk all the time about how size-adjusted agility for the tight end is a great indicator of NFL production potential. Zach Miller's best comparable player on playerprofiler.com is Jordan Cameron. So the big winner from free agency was actually the Bears' Zach Miller and Ladarius Green and Kobe Fleener. So all the biggest winners from NFL free agency were tight ends. Either tight ends going somewhere where they would get a significant increase in volume and or quality of target or existing incumbents that rise up the depth chart as their teams either release or lose the starting tight end in front of them. The Bears traded away Martellus Bennett. The Rams let Jared Cook go. So now Lance Kendricks becomes the number one tight end in Los Angeles. Denver released Owen Daniels and Vernon Davis. So now Virgil Green becomes the number one tight end in Denver. And we'll be talking about these late round tight ends in the upcoming weeks because I will not be drafting a tight end in the first 10 rounds in any league, redraft, dynasty, any format, doesn't matter. I will be waiting a long, 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 long time to draft a tight end this year, because there are a lot of under-the-radar options that could be top 10 fantasy tight ends this year, and I just named five of them. But it's interesting about the buzz you hear for NFL free agents. The buzz typically revolves around the players that are doing the moving. The new number two wide receivers like Marvin Jones. Marvin Jones going to the Lions. Yeah. Mohamed Sanu going to the Falcons. Yeah. 
new players moving around. Yeah. But I'm just as interested in the players that remain on the teams that didn't sign new players. The Zach Millers who, by default, move up the depth chart because their team didn't backfill a lost asset. So there are some notable teams who lost wide receivers during NFL free agency and did not backfill them, and I want to talk about them today. I actually have a top five list of the next man up on the depth chart, NFL wide receivers that no one's talking about, even though if you look at the depth chart on NFL.com, they are technically starters. And by the way, you can now also go to playerprofile.com forward slash teams, and you can see each player by team. So you can click on the Dolphins, and you can see all the players on the Dolphins active roster, and we've now broken out those players, and we're listing them according to their place on the depth chart. So what I did was I went to this playerprofile.com forward slash teams page, and I started clicking through the teams looking for the number two receivers that rose up the depth chart quietly because they became their team's de facto number two after their team didn't re-sign a free agent. When the Browns lost Travis Benjamin, somebody benefited from that. When the Bengals let both Mohamed Sanu and Marvin Jones walk, someone benefited from that. Those players are not getting talked about even a fraction as much as the players that signed elsewhere and gave the teams that were doing the signing a jolt. It's always great to have a talent infusion. The Lions passing game got better. That's exciting. We should be talking about Marvin Jones, but it's also interesting to talk about who on the Cincinnati Bengals benefits as well. So here are my top five number two wide receivers that I believe are undervalued heading into 2016 because no one's talking about them. Now, number one is Terrence Williams. The Dallas Cowboys didn't lose any wide receivers of consequence to free agency, but no one, well, that's not true because on playerprofile.com, there was a big collaborative piece where a lot of fantasy experts in the community donated a paragraph about a particular player that they believe is undervalued in Dynasty. The bilogasm on playerprofile.com. I suggest you go read it. There was an interesting buy-low opportunity listed in that article by Matthew Friedman from Fantasy Labs. Terrence Williams. And it was interesting to me because it struck me when he sent it along to me. When he sent me the blurb, I thought, wow, no one has talked about Terrence Williams for months. No one. The words Terrence Williams have not tumbled from the lips of a single fantasy analyst in months and months. And it doesn't make sense. Because when you zoom out and you look at what Terrence Williams has done the last couple years, he's been impressive. In 2014, Terrence Williams was top five in the league in production premium, plus 36.9, to go along with a plus 8.2% target premium and a 9.6 yards per target. Woo! One of the most efficient wide receivers in the NFL in 2014 was Terrence Williams. So then what happened in 2015? He cratered, right? No, he actually didn't. His total yards went up by close to 200. His receptions went up by 15. His production premium remained positive, even though his quarterbacks were some combination of Brandon Whedon, Matt Castle, and others, not named Tony Romo. And the metric we like to look at when a wide receiver experiences quarterback upheaval in a season, we like to go back and look at target premium because that measures that wide receiver's per-target productivity against his peers who were also suffering under the yoke of bad quarterback play. Terrence Williams 
target premium in 2015 was plus 7.4%, top 40 in the league. So even though the non-Tony Romo quarterback play in Dallas was an atrocity, he was relatively productive. Look at his yards per target last year, 9.0, top 25 in the league. Now, we know that Terrence Williams is not a red zone threat. That's Des Bryant's job, be the red zone target hog, because... Terrence Williams' red zone catch rate last year, 27.3%, league bottom. And he's not good in contested situations either. 20.0 was 84th in the league. So Terrence Williams has certain things he's good at. He's good at securing the ball on deep breaking routes. That's how he's able to rack up a 9.0 plus yards per target in two consecutive seasons, even though his quarterbacks last year included Brandon Whedon and Matt Castle. I think Matt Castle played worse than Brandon Whedon last year. And the assumption is that Tony Romo will come back at full health in 2016. So why not buy Terrence Williams now when the hype is non-existent? He's only 26 years old, but once you reach 26 years old and you haven't posted a 1,000-yard season yet, you're dead to the fantasy community. You might as well not exist. We have no reason to talk about you. Well, I'm talking about you, and Matthew Friedman wanted to talk about you. So, Terrence Williams, you do have some redeeming value. And those redeeming qualities are a 38.3% college dominator rating, 73rd percentile. I keep coming back to this. He was a dominant college receiver. He had both the college dominator rating and the 18.9 college yards per reception, which is 90th percentile, and a 101.0 70th percentile height-adjusted speed score. So he's explosive. He's an incredible deep threat. One of the better deep threats in the league that, again, no one talks about. And we talk about how Dallas will be investing in skill position players in the draft, but it always revolves around which running back they're going to draft. So assuming Dallas doesn't invest high round draft capital in a wide receiver, Terrence Williams will once again be the entrenched number two receiver and the de facto number two receiver in years past, Jason Witten, will be 34 years old. He was one of the slowest tight ends in the NFL five years ago. Jason Witten invented the term dad runner five years ago. And even if Des Bryant comes back at 100% health, which is still an if at this point, how can you not be excited about what Terrence Williams can do with a healthy Tony Romo for a full season, given the fact that his counting stats improved last season without Tony Romo? Think about it. Top five production premium with Tony Romo for a full season in 2014 at age 24. So Terrence Williams is my number one wide receiver that is number two on the depth chart that no one's talking about. The default under the radar player who is slotted in at the top of a target totem pole for a potentially high volume offense. Now the next guy on the list is Jarius Wright. He's just as exciting to me as Terrence Williams, except Jarius Wright doesn't play on a high volume offense with a quarterback capable of elevating the players around him yet. I still have hope that Teddy Bridgewater one day will be as prolific as Tony Romo, but he's not there yet. And the Vikings emphasize the run more than the pass. But when you look at Jarius Wright, he was also hugely efficient in 2014. 
his efficiency then took a step back in 2015. But 2014 production premium plus 10.7 plus 18.1% target premium, 9.5 yards per target. Across the board, Jarius Wright's efficiency in 2014 was in the top 25. Also, by the way, led the league in yards after the catch per target. Oh, by the way, one of the truly great wide receivers after the catch. And the Vikings let Mike Wallace go, and they didn't backfill the wide receiver position with any new talent. So Jarius Wright naturally will rise up the depth chart. I don't know what's going to happen with Charles Johnson. Yes, he broke his ribs at the beginning of the season, but he was deactivated for games in which he was technically healthy. That is a massive red flag. And Jarius Wright projects to be a starting flanker. I think they might, if they don't play Charles Johnson at the X receiver position, the Vikings might play Stephon Diggs out of position at the X receiver because I think Stephon Diggs would best be deployed at Z. I'd love to see Charles Johnson at X, Stephon Diggs at Z, and Jarius Wright in the slot. But if the Vikings have truly lost faith in Charles Johnson, as they indicated last year, they might play Diggs out of position at the X receiver and then play Jarius Wright as a starter at flanker. And getting a full 100% snap share, you can imagine that Jarius Wright could post a 1,000-yard season. He has that in him. Again, every year you go back and you look at the Jarius Wright yards per target. It's over 8.5 every year. He's always in the top 30 yards per target because he's so fantastic after the catch. And even last year, his efficiency waned from 2014, but his catch rate was still 68.0%, top 20 in the league. So if the Vikings do not draft a wide receiver with high round draft capital, Jarius Wright also becomes just as exciting as some of these free agents that signed elsewhere. Yet no one's talking about Jarius Wright's potential as a starter for the Minnesota Vikings in 2016. And I'll remind you, Jarius Wright's workout metrics, all 70th percentile or above, 40, burst score, and agility score. That to me is exciting. Now, another team that has not yet re-signed its number one incumbent receiver is the San Francisco 49ers. They have not yet re-signed Anquan Bolden. And if you look at the depth chart, a player named Quentin Patton is technically the number two receiver on the San Francisco 49ers. But I don't like Quentin Patton. I think once the preseason plays itself out, that Quentin Patton will be usurped by DeAndre Smelter if the wide receiver core remains as is. In fact, I think Eric Rogers and Bruce Ellington are both better than Patton. Quentin Patton is in the unfortunate situation that he's technically, by default, the number two receiver on his team, but he's a cut candidate at the same time. But I like DeAndre Smelter. We've talked about this in other shows. The reason I like Brian Quick so much is Brian Quick had the college dominance, the size, and the height-adjusted speed score. So if you claim to be team big receiver, if you claim to be a height supremacist, then you must like Brian Quick because Brian Quick is in unique company. And the great thing is anyone can go see this. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash data dash analysis and you can simply pull up a list of wide receivers based on height, speed, college dominator, pull the list, sort it, and you'll see, boom, there's Brian Quick with players like Calvin Johnson and Brandon Marshall and Larry Fitzgerald. Dominant college producers with great height-adjusted speed scores. It's a short list. 
Brian Quick happens to be on it, and another player that is also on that list, that short list, is DeAndre Smelter. A fourth-round pick last year, he was injured in the second half of the season at Georgia Tech, but if you extrapolate his dominator, it comes out to a 43.7%, 86th percentile. 6'2", 226, a big, productive college receiver. And what's interesting about DeAndre Smelter is, even though he only ran a 4.57, which isn't great, his yards per reception at Georgia Tech, 20.4. So he's able to get downfield and make plays. So I like DeAndre Smelter as another potential number two receiver in a passing game that no one is talking about because he's the guy that is quietly moving up the depth chart by default. He's not signing a splashy contract elsewhere. Now another guy benefiting from players ahead of him signing splashy contracts elsewhere is Mario Alford. He's that guy in Cincinnati who's benefiting the most from his former teammates signing elsewhere. I mean, why did Cincinnati let both Mohamed Sanu and Marvin Jones go elsewhere? I think one of the reasons is they like Mario Alford. I like Mario Alford. How can I like Mario Alford and DeAndre Smelter? There's no one in the fantasy universe who is enthusiastic about both DeAndre Smelter and Mario Alford because DeAndre Smelter weighs 225 pounds. Mario Alford weighs 180 pounds. You're either a height supremacist or you're not. No, obviously, all else being equal, you want your wide receivers to be bigger. When you're bigger and you're stronger, you have a better opportunity to win playing a sport that values size and strength. Obviously, bigger is better. But there's also an archetype in the NFL that absorbs a significant target share time and time again. The volume slot receiver. And the volume slot receiver in the NFL has a couple traits. Oftentimes, they were productive in college. Many times were prolific special teamers at the college level. Not necessarily even productive on the offensive side of the football. But always upper percentile agility. Always. Always, always, always. It's why I have doubts about Sterling Shepard. He projects to be a slot receiver at the NFL level, but he has bottom percentile agility. That rarely works out. That's a Cole Beasley, Lance Moore archetype. Not Julian Edelman. But Mario Alford fits that volume slot receiver archetype that becomes fantasy viable. Not just fantasy viable. We've seen volume slot receivers achieve WR1 status in fantasy leagues. You put the right receiver in the right situation with the right quarterback, he can receive 150 targets. That's the path to WR1 status in fantasy. It doesn't matter if you're Julio Jones or you're Wes Welker. Could a player look less like Julio Jones than Wes Welker? No! Did it matter when it comes to fantasy point totals? No! Mario Alford runs a 4-4-3. That's 84th percentile, and his agility, 1071, 95th percentile. The red flag on his profile is the fact that he only had a 32.6% dominator rating at West Virginia. That's 58th percentile. That's not impressive. It's higher than Danny Amendola's. It's higher than Wes Welker's, but it's not great. But may I remind you that he posted that dominator at West Virginia when the other receiver across the field from him was named Kevin White, a top 10 pick in the NFL draft. Oh, who was another player whose college dominator was throttled by having another NFL caliber receiver across from him on the field? Hmm. 
Was his name Odell Beckham Jr. by chance? Hmm. Jeez, I think that's true. I think that was Odell Beckham Jr. So in that context, Mario Alford's dominator rating at West Virginia is more impressive. 14.5% yards per reception is average, but it's above average for a slot receiver in college. So every aspect of Mario Alford's profile screams volume slot receiver at the NFL level. And who's ahead of him in the passing game? A.J. Green, Tyler Eifert, Gio Bernard. But he's still number four. He's number four on a team that could be a high-volume offense, depending on the game flow that Cincinnati finds themselves experiencing in 2016, Mario Alford could receive significant volume. Now, of course, Cincinnati could go out and draft Josh Doxson, and then this whole thing falls apart. They draft Corey Coleman, the whole thing falls apart, of course. But if the wide receiver core remains as is, or the Bengals merely invest a late-round pick in a wide receiver, then I really like Mario Alford's prospects for 2016. His projection will jump. Almost no wide receiver's 2016 projection is as NFL draft dependent as Mario Alford's. But I'm quietly optimistic. Another guy I'm optimistic about, not quite as much as Alford, the fifth guy on my list, Dwayne Harris. Because Dwayne Harris also has 1096 agility score, 73rd percentile. Anytime you get a sub 11 flat agility score, you're in the 70th percentile or above. That's what you want from your slot flanker. And I say slot flanker because Dwayne Harris has the size at 5, 10, 200 pounds to also play flanker. He has the bulk to be a strong side blocker on an NFL football field. So Dwayne Harris is super versatile. He plays special teams, but he can play flanker. He can play slot. He has the agility and he has the hands. 63.2% catch rate last year was 35th in the league. His yards per target is low because he's a slot receiver, really. But again, he could play flanker and he had a positive production premium last year and a top 40 catch rate. Also had a 66.7% red zone catch rate, which was 12th in the league. I mean, that's not, that was probably an outlier, but he's a player they trust in the red zone as well. So I like Dwayne Harris because the New York Giants didn't sign any free agents of consequence, and it looks like they are going to let Ruben Randall walk in free agency. I mentioned Corey Coleman earlier, and I said on the Sonic Truth podcast that Corey Coleman is a close comparable to Odell Beckham Jr. Now, that was an exaggeration. Coleman's OBJ comp is not nearly as close as, say, Allen Robinson's Des Bryant comp. But on that Sonic Truth pod, I was marveling at the fact that no player was comparable to OBJ until Corey Coleman came along. And Odell Beckham Jr.'s best comparable was a far distant comp in Greg Jennings. It was a far distant comp until Corey Coleman came along. And my co-host Nate Liss insists that I'm the first to make this comparison, this Corey Coleman, Odell Beckham Jr. comp. And I don't believe it. I mean, contact the show at Roto Underworld on Twitter. Email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. Is there anyone else out there comparing Corey Coleman to Odell Beckham Jr.? Am I the only one? And we had a buzzard write in. You can stop celebrating your Corey Coleman Odell Beckham Jr. comp now. Odell Beckham Jr. wasn't even a great prospect. Remember? Oh, comma space remember. Yes. Yes, I remember. I do remember that. I did not think Odell Beckham Jr. was an elite prospect when he came out of LSU. I mean, I'm guilty. How many different podcasts do I have to say? I'm guilty. I got Odell Beckham Jr. wrong. Stop reminding me. It's been two years. You can stop now. Also, 
Does anyone want to be the guy that tells other guys that they should stop celebrating? You really want to be the stop celebrating guy? Yeah, I think it's time to stop celebrating. Oh, you can stop celebrating now. Do you really want to be that guy? <laughs> no, no one wants to be that guy. And looking back, it's clear Odell Beckham Jr. was a great prospect. But at the time he came out, I didn't realize it because I was overemphasizing size in my prospect evaluation methodology, which is why I was higher on Allen Robinson and Dante Moncrief and Jeff Janis and Martavis Bryant than most other fantasy analysts at the time. And at the time, I erred by not putting Odell Beckham Jr. in my top five. That was a mistake. I'm sorry. And it's funny, two years ago, few people cared about wide receiver size as much as I do. Now, there are a lot of people that care more about wide receiver size than I do. See Laquan Treadwell. So the script has flipped. And now, almost no one is as high on Corey Coleman as I am. <laughs> it's a bizarro world. There are very few people comping Odell Beckham Jr. to Corey Coleman. I think that's true. There must be somebody. That's why I'm asking you all to let me know because there has to be someone comping Corey Coleman to Odell Beckham Jr. because the numbers say that they are quite clearly comparable. The problem is most people don't look at the numbers. Of course. <laughs> I think most people that are constructing comps are more concerned about a stylistic match than they are an algorithmic match. That's why you see very few people comparing Corey Coleman to Odell Beckham Jr. OBJ is perceived to be a player who wins with verticality and sleight of hand. Corey Coleman is perceived to win primarily with explosive, low center of gravity, after-the-catch skills. But the fact is that both players win with verticality, and both players win with lateral quickness. Both players win before the catch, and both players win after the catch. That's why one of those players is a versatile stud at the NFL level now, and the other, Corey Coleman, will be a versatile stud at the NFL level in the near future. If anything, Corey Coleman is athletically superior to Odell Beckham Jr. You heard that right. If I could live out of these waters, betcha on land, they understand that they don't reprimand their daughters. Bright young women, sick of swimming, ready to stand. Oh! <laughs> Vivian has infiltrated the podcast with mind-melded mermaid songs. Sorry, everybody!